Numbers 22, as we come to this point in the book of Numbers, we have come now with the children of Israel right to the place of having them on the edge of the promised land. As they're in their wilderness wandering, they've now come right to the border of the promised land. And in connection to that, as we've seen recently, having been now through a season in the wilderness and now coming to the edge of the promised land, they have just recently found themselves engaged in a few military conflicts. Uh, And in those military conflicts, uh, God has given to them some pretty substantial victories over what really would be considered some substantial foes that they found themselves up against. They certainly were uh, outmatched in many ways from a human perspective, but yet with God by their side and God assisting to them, God gave them victory and assistance in what they were going through as they fought different individuals. Uh, And, you know, so interesting to take note of that as they're now on the border about to enter into that promised land to experience the promised life that God intends for them, that it's at that point that they find themselves now engaged in different conflicts, that they find resistance, and we'll see as we go on in our chapters ahead of us other efforts uh, to try and divert them and to keep them from what God intended for them moving forward and I think it's just an incredible reminder as we've been looking at these things together and talking about how that life in the promised land given to us here it's a historical account but it also pictures by way of typology that life of living in the promised life of the spirit of everything that God intends for us entering into that promised experience in the spiritual life that God intends for us having victory over our enemies conquering territory possessing what God has provided for us Uh, and in that same way as they find that there is conflict and resistance and warfare keeping them to the best of the ability from a fleshly standpoint from entering in and experiencing those things that that so often is going to be the case with our life that right when it seems we are on the edge or the cusp if you would of entering into something that God has for us, maybe a greater fullness in the walk of God's Spirit or experiencing the promises of God or entering in to that thing which God intends for us that many times we're going to find when we're on the edge of something that God wants for us, that's really when the conflict is going to intensify. That's really when we're going to find there's greater resistance and a lot of times there are those attacks from the enemy because the devil does not want us to experience God's best for us. He doesn't want us to enter into the things that God intends for us. So be aware, sometimes when you are right on the edge of something that God intends for you, that many times is going to be met with a lot of resistance and warfare and conflict and things that seek to hold us back. So maybe if you're experiencing a lot of resistance and warfare and conflicts, that may not be a bad thing. That may mean that you're right on the edge of something that God is about to bring you into that's a good and wonderful part of his plan for your life. And they now are on the border. They've overcome a few of their uh, military obstacles. They've defeated uh, uh, a few of the different people groups that have come against them with God's help. And it seems almost as if, again, if the devil knows that he can't win or overcome by direct fear or by force, then many times the devil will just sort of resort to other tactics, more subtle tactics, more sneaky tactics. And now that's what we see happening in chapters 22 through 25, is now the devil sort of resorts to working in a different way since Israel seems to be doing well militarily. He now tries to seek to curse them and to come against them in a different way through spiritual warfare and opposition to try and bring them them down in a different way and again what a great reminder if the devil can't directly intimidate you by force and fear trust me his bag of tricks is always to then find a more subtle way a more sneaky way through spiritual warfare and opposition to try and drag you down or to get you to bring God's curses upon yourself in a sense and to just really ultimately do what Israel does which is they ultimately bring in a sense a a curse upon themselves they curse themselves We'll see that Balaam, this bizarre uh, sort of false prophet in these chapters, is unsuccessful trying to curse God's people because God says, I've blessed them. And therefore, you can't curse them because my blessing is upon them. But ultimately, as he causes them to take a detour into sexual immorality and idolatry, basically, ultimately, Balaam will say, look, I can't curse them because God's blessed them. But here's what I can tell you. 
if you lead them into sin and immorality and idolatry, you can get them to curse themselves. And you can get them to bring pain and problems into their own lives, and that's ultimately what will unfold as the chapters before us begin to lead us in that direction moving forward. But we come to now chapter 22, verse 1, and it says, The children of Israel then moved. So again, once again, they're progressing towards the entry into the promised land, and they now camp, it says, verse 1, in the plains of Moab. So they're now on the eastern side of the border of the Jordan River, it says, notice, across from Jericho. So they are right on the edge now, getting ready to enter into the land and there in the area of the Moabites. And it says now, verse 2, that Balak, the son of Zippor, saw that what Israel had done to the Amorites. We read about that in our last chapter together, how Israel defeated the Amorites in a great victory by God's power enabling them. And Moab, verse 3, notice, the people of Moab were exceedingly afraid because they were many and Moab was sick with dread because of the children of Israel so Moab said to the elders of Midian a people who were off to their southeastern area the uh, uh, nearby neighbor now this company they say will lick up everything around us as an ox licks up the grass of the field it's sort of again a a metaphorical way of speaking of how just they're going to be devoured like a hungry ox would just devour a territory we might say today in our terminology uh, you know man you know that person they're so intent they're just going to mow us down you know they're just going to tear us apart and this is the idea here of of what they're describing so Balak it says the son of Zippor was king of Moab at that time so Again, because of the prior victories we just read about together in chapter 21, where Israel had defeated some pretty substantial foes in a great military victory, Balak now, this king of Moab, who's right now on the border there, and he's in the territory where Israel has now settled in there, in the area of Moab, Balak, the king of Moab, realizes something very important. As we read in chapter 21, that the Amorites had defeated Moab. Now, Israel had just defeated the Amorites, we read in chapter 21. So, Balak doesn't take a genius here. He's putting two and two together. He's saying, wait a minute. If the Amorites just whooped us, and now Israel just whooped the Amorites, that doesn't fare too good for us. We are in real jeopardy of those people of Israel with Jehovah God. He senses the jeopardy now and the danger of the people of Moab because he realizes the people whom defeated us were just defeated by Israel. So therefore, we're in real danger. We better find out some way of keeping ourselves from getting conquered. And what he actually does now is he sends over to the area of Midian and begins to discuss this. And ultimately, they come up with this plan to seek out this sort of diviner or soothsayer to come and try and weaken the people of Israel so that somehow potentially they could overcome them. It says, verse 5, that he sent messengers to Balaam, and we'll talk about this individual, he's quite an enigma in the scriptures, the son of Beor at Pethor, which is near the river. Now, what that's referring to there is the Euphrates River. So when he says that he sent to Balaam, the son of Beor, near the Euphrates River Valley in the land of the sons of his people, what that's describing, just for, for reference point here, is sending now over 350 miles away to this man Balaam which just gives to you a little bit of an indication, again, keep in mind that day, probably the recognition that the people of that land and that area must have had in that region of the power of this sort of soothsayer, you know, diviner, this man Balaam, that he knew about this guy 350 miles away. He sends for him to try and hire him to come and curse the people of Israel. And keep in mind, this, you know, again, this is not in the day of the internet where you could go on Google and, you know, search out a diviner. You know, I need somebody to curse some people. This was by word of mouth from a 350 mile radius away, Balaam had that kind of recognition as someone who had such 
power was in touch with spiritual forces, no doubt demonic forces, that he was channeling spirits in the spirit realm to bring curses and blessings on people that now Balaam, in his terrified state of the king of Moab, says, you know what, we, or Balaam, excuse me, says, we need to send for Balaam. And he sends all the way over to the Euphrates Valley now, to the area where Balaam was from, in the land of the sons of his people to call him saying verse 5 look a people has come from Egypt the Israelites and see they cover the face of the earth again keep in mind some two to two and a half million people the congregation of Israel was and he says they're now settling next to me exclamation point that's nervous and terrifying therefore please the message says come at once and curse notice curse this people for me for they are too mighty for me. Perhaps I shall be able to defeat them and drive them out of the land. For I know that whom you bless is blessed and whom you curse is cursed. Doesn't that sound interesting? Doesn't that sound familiar like Genesis 12 there? Verse 7. So the elders of Moab and the elders of Midian together as, as a confederation, they departed, notice, with the diviner's fee in their hand and they went and came to Balaam and spoke to him the words of Balak. So Balak now assembles together a group of nobles, a group of elders from Midian and Moab and they travel 350 miles to go and to request the services, if you would, of this man Balaam to come, he says, and curse the people of Israel who have now settled in their territory because they're thinking if Balaam curses them, then they'll be weakened and we can overcome them and, and defeat them militarily. So this was a very common practice in the pagan culture. They believed if you could have in some way, you know, weaken a people's gods or weaken them, that then they would be vulnerable and then you could overcome them. So this was a very common thing. And, and Balaam seems to be someone, take notice, who had a reputation for being very successful and very effective in bringing curses or channeling spiritual forces because notice they say there in verse 6 of him regarding his recognition they say we know that whom you bless is blessed and whom you curse is cursed from 350 miles away they knew that and they go to him as well with a diviner's fee which shows you that this guy worked for a price he charged a fee for his religious services. And in essence, this man, Balaam, is really an enigma of sorts. He's very strange and, and hard to understand as we read about him in the scriptures. I mean, he is someone from this area of Mesopotamia. And historians say that from that territory there, there was a known historical group or a clan of enchanters. He's some sort of, a said, a, a pagan soothsayer, a diviner of sorts, uh, who used spiritual practices for personal gain. We read that they would pay him a diviner's fee. So he was using religious and divination and spiritual activity as a means of self-enrichment or for hire for personal profit. Sound familiar? Not much new under the sun today. People still did that even in the ancient culture as some use religious practices for personal profit and charge a diviner's fee in a little bit different way. They, they don't quite call it a diviner's fee, but they, they're still doing it for profit using religious techniques and things of that nature for personal enrichment. And this was Balaam. Now, again, this guy's very strange but anytime he's portrayed in scripture, he's always portrayed in a negative light. Now, we're going to read that God speaks to him. We're going to read that he actually utters prophetic words that God speaks through him. But I think we need to be careful to ever begin to think somehow that Balaam represents what a believer should be. Again, when Balaam is presented in the scripture, he's always portrayed in a negative way as an unhealthy or dangerous individual or someone who is involved in erroneous ways jude 11 speaks of the error of balaam second peter 2 speaks uh, of uh, the uh, you know the, the way of balaam and then revelation 2 speaks of the doctrine of balaam let me just read to you those scriptures to give you an idea of what the new testament gives of commentary of this man balaam because it's important to keep in mind as we look at him and again this is the holy spirit's commentary 
on the life of Balaam from a New Testament perspective. And again, the best commentary on the Bible is what? The Bible, right. It's not this particular commentator. Listen, I love commentators. But the best commentary on the Bible is the Bible itself. So this is the Bible's commentary on Balaam. Jude 11 says, Woe to them, for they've gone in the way of Cain and run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit and perished in the rebellion of Korah. So Jude 11 couples him with Cain, not a good individual, and with Korah, the rebellion of Korah. And it speaks there of Balaam as someone who runs greedily after gain. It says they've run greedily in the error of Balaam. This was the error of Balaam, after greed, seeking personal gain. Second Peter 2, which is a chapter about false teachers and false prophets says this, it says, they have forsaken the right way and gone astray following the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But he was rebuked for his iniquity. A dumb donkey speaking with a man's voice restrained the madness of the prophet. And Peter gives that commentary on these very chapters. And then Revelation 2 to the church of Pergamos, Jesus says, I have a few things against you, speaking to that church, because you have there those who hold the doctrine of Balaam, who taught, as we'll see in later chapters, Balak, this king, ultimately to put a stumbling block before the children of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. So never in a good light, Balaam always portrayed as a negative individual, unhealthy, dangerous, a greedy person after self-enrichment in it for his own self and looking to manipulate the things of spirituality for his own personal benefit. But I'll tell you this, there may be those who try and manipulate spiritual forces, channel demonic forces, and look, there's power in demonic things. There's power in spiritual forces and people unfortunately use even the name of God and throw around the name of Jesus and try and even use the ways of God and the word of God and, and God himself in manipulative ways to greedily enrich themselves and lead in wrong directions and do things for personal profit. But I'll tell you this, God will never ultimately be manipulated. The Bible says in Psalm 115 that God is in heaven and he does whatever he pleases. And God, and please don't misunderstand what I mean by this. God is the master manipulator. You're not going to manipulate God. God is in control of all things and God will reach down his hand and will manipulate even the greatest manipulators. If you understand what I'm saying. Because God will manipulate everything to go the way that he wants. The Bible says he works all things according to the counsel of his will. So Balaam's will exist, false teachers will exist, but none of these things ultimately will supersede the plans and purposes of God. And we'll see that in these chapters portrayed. If one thing's evident in these chapters, it's this, no matter how hard anyone tries to resist the work of God, the will of God, the purposes of God, ultimately God will turn even, it says, curses into a blessing for his purposes and that's incredible encouragement for us especially as children of God and as his people that he works on our behalf to protect us and to bless us in such ways so the call now goes forth to Balaam please come curse these people we know that whomever you bless is blessed whomever you curse is cursed so they arrive now verse 7 with the diviner's fee in their hand because they know he charges a price for his services they're ready to pay him they communicate the invitation and request Verse 8, Balaam then said to these who arrived making a request for his services, Lodge here tonight, and I will bring back word to you as the Lord, notice capital L-O-R-D, that's that Hebrew tetragrammaton, Yahweh or Jehovah. So he references the covenant name of Israel's God. Apparently he knew that this was their God. I will bring back word to you as Jehovah the Lord speaks to me. So the princes of Moab stayed with Balaam. So again, already here, how did he know to utilize that name? Some say it's because he was from the area in Mesopotamia, which honestly was around the same territory where Abraham was from. So was there some awareness because he lived in the same land ultimately where the ancient patriarch Abraham was from when Yahweh God revealed himself to Abraham? That's possible. Uh, again, is he using the name of the Lord here in the sense that again, these soothsayers and diviners, what they believe, keep in mind in that day, everybody had their God. 
It was a polytheistic culture. And everybody had their God. And it was believed if your God was stronger than somebody else's God, well, then that's how you would have victory. So what Balaam ultimately probably did many a times was in his crafty ways and say, okay, what's your God? I'm in touch with all the gods. And for the right fee, I can get in touch with your God too. I'll just dial his number. I just tell me who your God is. And, I'll, and again, he would channel spirits. And apparently there was some measure of success in what he did and these distorted and somewhat demonic things he was involved in. So he knows that Israel's God is Yahweh. So look what he, again, he wants to seem impressive and like he's worth his salt, worth the salary, the diviner's fee. So he says, look, okay, I hear what you're asking. Let me go see what with this Yahweh God Let me go see what he would speak to me. Now, here's what's interesting. Verse 9. It says, Then God came to Balaam and said, What are these men? Or excuse me, who are these men with you? Now, I just want you to take notice there. He says, Let me go talk to Yahweh God. That's the covenant name of Jehovah, Yahweh God of the people of Israel. But notice it says, And then God. It doesn't say Yahweh. It doesn't say the Lord. It's almost as if God says, Look, I have no covenant with you. So I'm not Yahweh to you, buddy. I'm God. I'm the sovereign creator of the heavens and the earth. And I'll speak to you in that sense. But he says, you have no covenant with me. It's interesting that every time he refers to Yahweh or Jehovah, it doesn't say Yahweh or Jehovah spoke to him. It just says God. God spoke to him. It's almost as if you sense God saying, look, you don't, you don't run me, I run you. Now, keep in mind here, people, why would God speak to him? He's a pagan. He's a, I mean, he's a false prophet. He, why would God speak to him? Well, listen, there are times in the scripture where God spoke to pagan people. Think of, again, all the way back to the book of uh, Genesis. God spoke to Abimelech in the days of Abraham. Abimelech was a pagan king, but God spoke to him. God can speak to anyone. God can communicate to anyone in his creation. So God now, in a sense, you know, graciously condescends and he, he answers to him. He communicates to him. God said to Balaam, who are these men with you? Balaam said to God, Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, has sent them to me saying, look, a people has come out of Egypt and they cover the face of the earth. Come now, curse them for me. Perhaps I'll be able to overpower them and then drive them out. So again, verse 12, God said to Balaam, very clear, look, God's very clear when he speaks, you shall not go with them, you shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. I want you to notice two things there. First of all, Balaam gets his answer there. God gives him directly the will of God and the answer that he needed. God's answer wasn't real complicated. You shall not go, and you shall not curse those people. That wasn't a real complicated thing. Don't go, don't curse them. You shall not go, you shall not curse them. The reason, God says, for they're blessed. And that's not going to change. If you go, it still won't work. And if you try and curse them, God says it won't take place because I have determined by my sovereign decision as the ruler of all that they are a blessed people. Now, what a beautiful thing, too, to think of God's declaration of the positional standing of Israel as his covenant people, that God says they're blessed. Listen, that is God's declaration of their position, certainly wasn't of their practice or their performance, because if we think of their practice and their performance, the things that we've seen, uh, they were quite inconsistent spiritually. They failed a lot, they sinned a lot, they complained and whined a lot, right? We've been seeing this in our study with the history of the nation of Israel. But see, God didn't speak of them from their practice or their performance. God spoke of them in a positional sense of how he viewed them spiritually in their standing, in their covenant relationship with God. And God said, they're blessed. They're a mess, but they're blessed, (laughs) And you made that true of us. I mean, thank goodness that God does not speak of us and speak to us in relation to our practice or our performance. But God speaks to us in our spiritual position. We are in Christ if we're following Jesus. If we put our faith in Jesus, the Bible says we are righteous. We're justified. Positionally, God says, you're blessed. In heavenly places in Christ Jesus, God says, I already see you seated together with Christ in heavenly places. And God looks at us positionally as a blessed, chosen, 
covenant people under the blood of Jesus Christ, righteous in his sight. And we are blessed even though we are a mess. And even though we do still make mistakes and we whine and we have weaknesses and failures and we question God and we get off track, how wonderful to know that God's blessing is upon us, not because of our performance, but because of our faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And that's why we're blessed, because God's chosen to bless us out of his grace and out of who Jesus is. If our life is in Christ, we experience the blessings of that covenant relationship of being in Christ. So God tells Balaam here, very clear, Balaam, here's your answer. Don't go and don't curse the people. Don't go, don't curse the people. Pretty straightforward. Verse 13, so Balaam rose in the morning and said to the princes of Balak, go back to your land. For the Lord has refused to give me permission to go with you. And the princes of Moab rose and went to Balak and said, Balaam refuses to come with us. Well, verse 15, that wasn't going to be a, a simple uh, thing for Balak to hear. He's terrified and, and he's a man of power, a man of wealth and a man of influence. And so he has intentions and he's going to push the issue a little further. Verse 15, then Balak again sent princes notice he raises the ante now okay this guy just i guess that diviner's fee wasn't enough maybe this guy's worth a little more than i thought maybe he just needs everybody and here's the idea he's thinking in his mind everybody's got a price and i'll tell you something that's somewhat tragic because i think the devil knows that about a lot of people i think the devil looks at a lot of people among humanity and realizes everybody's got a price everybody's got a price and I'll tell you this, the devil will gladly pay whatever price it takes. And if you have a price to compromise spiritually, if there's some price, something that the devil needs to supply in your life to get you to do what he wants you to do, he will gladly pay the price. There's no cost. He will gladly pay the price to get you to compromise. He'll gladly get you to, to, to receive whatever you need to receive to get you to disobey God's direct will for your life. If God said don't go to get you to still go. Or if God said, don't do this to get you to still do that, he'll gladly do that. Think of Jonah. When Jonah decided he was going to disobey the Lord and not head off in obedience to preach to the people of Nineveh, he went down to the docks there. And what did he find? Imagine that, a ship already ready to go in the direction I want to go, away from Nineveh. An open door, imagine that. I pray for an open door. God, if it's your will for me not to go to Nineveh, I pray you'll open a door so that I can go to Tarshish the exact opposite direction. And he goes down to the docks and what does he find? Lo and behold, a ship ready to go to head to Tarshish. Did God put that there? Absolutely not. The devil, you want an open, the devil will gladly provide an open door for you to disobey God. He'll gladly provide you an opportunity to do what's wrong and disobedient if you truly have such a desire. Again, keep in mind, the psalmist tells us as well that at times with Israel, God gave them their request but sent leanness to their souls. And again, the direct will of God is right there in verse 12. It's very, very clear. Do not go, do not curse them. That's the direct will of God. It's not complicated. It's very straightforward. And often God's will, his direct will, is very clear. As he tells us directly the answer. We ask, he gives us the answer. He's very direct. Or we, it's something in relation to Scripture. And it's very clear in his word. God wants us to know his will. God gives us our answer. But then the devil, the enemy of our soul, again, he always pushes the issue. So now verse 15, he sends more numerous people more honorable than they, so greater dignitaries to try and impress him, make him feel more important. And they come to Balaam and say, Thus says Balak, the son of Zippor, Please let nothing hinder you from coming to me. For I will certainly, look, honor you greatly. I will do whatever you say. Therefore, please come and curse this people for me. So what, what's happened? The enticement's beginning now. And the enticement appealing to what? To the things of the flesh, to the lust of the eyes, to the pride of life, making him feel important, saying, look, there's no obstacle, nothing, whatever you want. Don't let anything hinder you. Please reconsider, come back. Whatever you want, I'll grant to you. And again, 
so subtly the devil is working and weaving this thing here because that's exactly what the weakness of Balaam was. Balaam's a greedy man. And Balaam, Balaam does what he does for profit and for hire and for self-advancement and self-enrichment. And this is exactly the bait that ultimately drags him down here. Because it's the very thing that someone like him would be enticed with. And I'll tell you this, the devil is no dummy. The devil runs good surveillance on our lives. I don't think the devil has the same capacities of God. He's not omniscient. He doesn't know everything. But the devil scrutinizes, I believe, at times people's lives. And he knows what bait works for you. And he knows what bait works for me. And often he will work through the lives of people that he may put into our paths and situations to know exactly what works to get us to be manipulated and to get us enticed in such a way whereby we become aroused and think, mm, yeah, no, I really do want to go. And, you know, I, I mean, I, I, but I really do want to do that. And, and so here now, this pressure comes, the enticement, look, whatever you want, I'll honor you. I'll do whatever you say. Balaam answered verse 18, trying to sound magnanimous, of course, even though he wants to go and said to the servants, though Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, Hint, hint. I could not go beyond the word of the Lord my God to do less or more. Now, again, here he's the Lord my God. Again, I, what's Balaam doing here? To me, he said, I, I hear what you're saying. Look, even if Balak were to give me his whole house, and I heard he's got quite a house, and if he filled it all the silver and gold of Moab, and that would should be a lot of cha-ching. He says, nonetheless... You know, I couldn't go beyond the word of now he calls him Jehovah my God. Now, of all the gods and spiritual forces, Yahweh, the one that you need to curse these people, get a load of this. He's actually my God. Oh, wow, Balaam, you sound really impressive. Boy, maybe we do need to raise the fee. I mean, you're actually in touch with Yahweh God? Again, he's using this as a way to, I think, make himself seem more impressive, to sound like he's more in touch with Yahweh God. Verse 19, he says, Now, therefore, please... Look, this goes to show you the next breath, what he's saying. He sounds like he wants to be faithful to this Yahweh God. But then he says, verse 19, Thou, therefore, please... He says, You also stay here tonight that I may know what more... Yahweh will say to me, what's up with that? No, what more? You don't need more information. He already told you, don't go and don't curse the people. You already have the direct will of God. But now what is Balaam doing? I'll tell you what he's doing here, verse 19, is he's beginning to become overwhelmed with his strong desire to do what he wants to do, which is contrary to what God has told him to do. And because of that, look what he's saying. Uh, all right, you know, let's do that. Actually, why don't you stay overnight? Not get out of here because I need to obey God and, and abstain from every potential temptation. Instead, he says, oh, well, why don't you stay the night? And you know what? Let me have another evening to go say, maybe there's something more that Yahweh God would want to tell. In other words, here's what he's thinking. Maybe God will change his mind. Maybe there's something more that he would tell me. Maybe go back and maybe they'll give me a different message. Maybe God will change his mind and uh, maybe he'll grant me an exception, he's thinking. Maybe he'll accommodate my desire. Maybe he'll give me the freedom to still do this. And I'll tell you, listen, when you know the direct will of God, it's never good to go back and try and get a second message. It's never good to begin to have this mentality. Well, I mean, I know God's word says that, but... Maybe God knows my situation, so maybe he'll give an accommodation for me. Maybe he'll make an exception for my situation. Maybe I should see if there's anything more God wants to say to me. I mean, I, yeah, I know what God said, but maybe there's still more. And maybe I, maybe I missed the signal the first time. Maybe I had, you know, didn't have the radio station tuned in correctly. And we're thinking somehow that if we go back and persist, that somehow God's going to change his mind. And, and what we're beginning to do is we're beginning to push down a road where we're walking away from the direct will of God and we're trying to find some loophole or some exception 
Or in essence, we're beginning to push towards, well, I know what God's direct will is, but, but maybe God will give me some permissive freedom to do what I want anyway, even though it's not the right thing. And that's a very slippery slope, ladies and gentlemen. When you begin to push and you begin to look for a loophole or an exception, when you know what God's already told you, that's never a good thing. And this is where Balaam is beginning to go because he's being driven by his own lusts and his desire that he wants to go because he realizes there's a lot of enrichment in this. Well, look what happens, verse 20. God came to Balaam at night and said to him, notice, if, circle that word, if the men come to you and call you, Rise and go with them, but only the word which I speak to you, that you shall do. So God says, look, okay, you're looking for a new message. If they come to you, if they come to you and call you, then you can go with them. Look at verse 21. So Balaam rose in the morning, saddled his donkey, and went with the princes. Wait a minute. There's something missing there. I thought it says, if they come to you. I thought it says, if they call you. What does Balaam do? He instantly interprets... All right, I got my license there. I pushed God. He gave me the exception. God said, if they come. Well, they're close. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're kind of in the neighborhood. So what does he do? The next morning, he just takes the liberty of his own, in a sense, hasty decision. And he just gets up early in the morning. He saddles his donkey. And it says he just went. He just went with it. That's always a bad thing to do where you push and persist and look for a loophole and then you hear something, well, that's close enough. I, I guess, you know, if you kind of look at that from this angle, okay, I guess that's God saying yes. I guess God's given me the freedom to do that now. That's always a very dangerous thing. And now Balaam here just jumps up and look, this is bottom line, this is direct disobedience now. God told him clearly, don't go, don't curse them. And now he's pushed and persisted and driven by the greed and self-desire for what he wants, he finds his little, what he perceives as a loophole, and he gets up, and he just directly disobeys the will of God now. And that's evident, that's why you read in verse 22, then God's anger was aroused because he went. Because he went, and he's directly disobeying God's plan and God's will at this point, in direct disobedience. So as he went, God's anger is aroused, and the angel of the Lord took his stand in the way as an adversary against him, as he was riding on his donkey, and his two servants were with him. Verse 23, now the donkey saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand. And the donkey, seeing the angel of the Lord, turned aside out of the way and went into the field. So Balaam struck the donkey to turn her back onto the road. Then the angel of the Lord stood in a narrow path between the vineyards with a wall on this side and a wall on that side. And when the donkey saw the angel of the Lord, she pushed herself against the wall and crushed Balaam's foot against the wall. So he struck her again. So he begins to beat this donkey who's seeming uncooperative and driving him nuts here because the donkey's more spiritually perceptive than he is. The donkey sees that God is, notice, trying to stand in the way against him. And whenever you're headed down a path of direct disobedience, I tell you this, God, because he's loving and gracious and kind, will do whatever he can to stand in the way and to stand against you, to try and hinder you and stop you. So this angel of the Lord now is standing and first time the donkey deviates off the road and Balaam gets mad and he's beats the thing, get back on the path. And he's always beating his donkey here. Then verse 24, the donkey's heading down a narrow path now. And again, there's no nothing but a wall on each side. The angel of the Lord's there again with a sword drawn to bring fear and intimidation. And the donkey pushes against one wall and crushes his foot. And Balaam gets angry again and begins, what's the matter with you? He's beating his donkey. Verse 26, then the angel of the Lord went further and stood in a narrow place where there was no way to turn either to the right or to the left. So the donkey can't even move. It's in such a narrow space now. And when the donkey saw, verse 27, the angel of the Lord, she just laid down under Balaam. So Balaam's anger was aroused and he struck the donkey with his staff. So the donkey, again, what is a donkey known for? Being stubborn. We say things like that dumb animal but who's really dumb here? Here, Balaam is so 
stubbornly persistent in his fleshly desires and his self-will to do what he wants rather than what he knows is right and what is God's will, he's completely blinded to God trying to hinder and stop his way. So this donkey here keeps doing everything it can to, to, in a sense, save and preserve Balaam at this point. The donkey's seeking to run interference. The donkey's trying to stop his path and pursuit and God's using hindrances and discomfort and it's all done, why? To protect Balaam from a path of further problems to protect him from a path of total destruction. If that donkey wasn't doing that, we're going to read in a minute, God's going to say to him, you would have been dead. That donkey saved your life. And whenever we're heading down a path that's not good, God will always, at times, run interference to try and stop that path or that pursuit. And he will use things like hindrances. He'll use things even like pain and discomfort to try and get our attention. Maybe you're trying to go down a path and, and you're finding hindrances. Maybe it's becoming uncomfortable. Maybe there's been problematic things and pain. Maybe God in this love is trying to keep you from heading down a path that will be very problematic if you keep going. Maybe God's purposely making it difficult for a reason. Maybe God's doing what he's doing to spare you and to save you. And sometimes we need to pay attention to this here. The angel of the Lord, again, is trying to stop this man from his madness, Peter said. To stop him from his madness, from his insanity. And we can be quite insane when we have a strong desire to pursue what we want. Well, look at the story. It even gets better now. Verse 28, after all that, then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey. So God opens the mouth of the donkey now miraculously. And she said to Balaam, what have I done to you that you have struck me three times? And Balaam, if that wasn't crazy enough, said, because you've abused me. I wish there were a sword in my hand for right now I would kill you. So look, we look at that, we go, well, that's crazy. I can't believe a, a donkey is actually talking to a man. But here's what's crazier. He's talking back. <laughs> Shows you how crazy people get when they're in sin. He's now talking back to the donkey. If I had a sword, I'd kill you. So the donkey said to Balaam, am I not your donkey on which you've ridden ever since the day I became yours to this day? He says, was I ever disposed to do this to you before? In other words, have I ever behaved like this before? And then Balaam says, no, no I guess not. Now look, nothing crazier than arguing with a donkey than arguing with a donkey and losing the argument. <laughs> and that's what's happening there. He says, look, what are you doing this before you people? Well, you're... And he says, have I ever done anything like this before? Have I ever acted like this? All these years I've been your donkey. Have I ever deviated and crushed your foot and sat in it? And Balaam says, oh, I guess you're right. Okay, you're right. You win this one. <laughs> and he agrees with the donkey at this point. So again... God miraculously, you want to talk about God going to some extents to try and speak to people and reach people? Don't tell me God doesn't love people. And don't tell me God doesn't love people even when there are absolute madness and insanity and sin and rebellion. He's in direct disobedience to God's will. He's doing something completely contrary to the will and the plan of God and God is going so far as to run hindrance, interference. Now God miraculously opens the mouth of an animal to talk to him, to try and speak into his life. I mean, man, the love of God really, you know, we look and say, well, that's a cute story. It's interesting. It's kind of funny. But it also reveals the, the powerful love of God, the mercy of God, the grace of God that he doesn't want people to destroy their lives, to go down paths of destruction. Again, it's a shame that we are so stubborn. And it's tragic that even in the midst of this, Balaam disregards even all these efforts of God and still pushes past it and still ignores it. So he argues with the donkey, verse 31, then the Lord opened Balaam's eyes. So now again, God opens the mouth of a donkey. Now God goes a step further. He says, now I'm going to open your eyes supernaturally to see what this animal is seeing here. And he saw the angel of the Lord standing in the way with his drawn sword in his hand. And he bowed his head and fell flat on his face. That's not a humility. That's called terror. That's called fear. And the angel of the Lord said to him, Why have you struck your donkey these three times? 
Behold, I've come out to stand against you because your way is perverse before me. Now, whether this was a true angel of God or again, sometimes as we said before, at times we see this phrase, the angel of the Lord, and it's a reference at times in the Old Testament to what we would call theophany or a Christophany, a pre-incarnate appearance of Christ. And it is interesting that the, the, the word of the Lord to him is your way is perverse before me. In other words, he's saying you are in sin and you're crooked in your way before me. So potentially this was the Lord himself standing in this moment trying to keep Balaam from this. The donkey saw me, he says, verse 33, and turned aside from me these three times. If she had not turned aside from me, surely I would also have killed you by now and let her live. Verse 34, Balaam said to the angel of the Lord, I have sinned. For I did not know you stood in the way against me. Now, therefore, if it displeases you, I will turn back. Well, that's easy to say when you just saw the angel of the Lord <laughs> with a sword there and realized that you almost died. So he says, I've sinned. But again, keep in mind, I don't think that's a genuine confession there. I don't think that's genuine repentance there. And I'll tell you why. Because just read on and you realize he says those nice spiritual platitudes, but then he goes right back to pursuing the same path that he wanted to be on. Pharaoh said, I have sinned. There are other people in the scripture who say, I have sinned. Again, the, the, the Bible says that there are those even who profess to know God and in works they deny him. So, yes, can our words be meaningful, but, but God genuinely sees what's going on in the heart. And in that moment, again, we, we talk about sometimes where people have, uh, you know, what, what's, that, what's that called when you're in a, in a war? Foxhole, right? And, and the bombs are in foxhole faith. And all of a sudden you're in the foxhole. Oh God, I believe you. Please forgive me. Follow my sin. Well, of course, because there's bombs going off around your, <laughs> your head. But then as soon as you get back to, you know, safe zone in the United States of America, all that faith goes out the window and you just go back to living however you want. And I think that's what you have going on with Balaam here. I've sinned, he says, and, and if it displeases you, I will turn back. Well, wait a minute. What do you mean if it displeases you? You know it displeases God. Why would God be doing what he's doing? I mean, it's almost a, a, a foolish statement. If it displeases you, I'll turn back. Well, of course it displeases God. Why do you think he just did all that he did? You know it displeases him. It wasn't a complicated thing. Well, the angel of the Lord said to Balaam, now he says, go. And that's never a good thing once God's told you not that. God says, go with the men. But God is going to use this for his own good purposes. As I said, he takes things and he turns them around. Even the, the errors of men, even the, the wrath of men, the Bible says, will be used to praise him. He says, go with the men, but only the word that I speak to you, you shall speak. So Balaam went with the princes of Balak. And when Balak heard that Balaam was coming, he went out to meet him at the city of Moab, which is on the border of Arnon, the boundary of the territory. And Balak said to Balaam, did I not earnestly send to you? calling for you why did you not come am i not able to honor you in other words he's thinking did you just not come because you thought i didn't have the means to pay you what you're worth he was insulted and balaam said look i've come to you now have i any power at all to say anything the word that god puts in my mouth that i must speak now in one sense, maybe he's beginning to recognize the reality of the sovereign authority of God. Either way, that's a really great statement. Verse 38, the word that God puts in my mouth, that I must speak. What God puts in our mouth, Paul said, that which I received from the Lord, I delivered unto you. So he says, look, I don't have power to say anything. My words mean nothing. And we're going to see ultimately, even when he tries to curse them, God brings a blessing out of his mouth three different times when he's even trying to curse. So Balaam went with Balak and they came to Kirjoth Huzoth and Balak offered oxen and sheep and he sent some to Balaam and to the princes who were with him. And so it was the next day that Balak took Balaam and brought him up to the high places of Baal that from there he might observe the extent of the people. So what happens now is they now 
go up to a high place. They begin to go through these ritualistic sacrifices. Again, I don't think these are the Levitical sacrifices. Many people sacrificed animals in that day as well. Many times that was a way of divining as well. They would look at the entrails of the animals and read the entrails and I mean all kinds of bizarre, distorted things. And again, they're thinking, well, let's make these sacrifices. And again, looking down upon the people to view them because it was a believed in that day that if you could see the extent of a people with your eyes and many historians said that if you could measure them between your thumb and your finger that is kind of sizing them up that that meant that if you could see them well then you were able to have the power to curse them so he's now brought up to this high place and Balaam says to Balak chapter 23 build seven altars for me here prepare seven bulls and seven rams Balak did as Balaam had spoken and Balak and Balaam offered a bull and a ram on each altar. They think they're currying the favor now of Jehovah God. And Balaam said to Balak, stand by your burnt offering and I will go. Perhaps the Lord will come to meet me. And whatever he shows me, I will tell you. So he went to a desolate height. And God met Balaam and said to him, I've prepared the seven altars and offered each altar a bull and a ram. And then the Lord put a word in Balaam's mouth and said return to Balaam and thus you shall speak so he returned to him and there he was standing by his burnt offering and he and the princes of Moab and he took up this oracle and now begins to pronounce a blessing and not a curse over the people now we're going to have to stop here this evening for leave you to cliffhanger so you go well, what's he going to say let's maybe come back next week we do this purposely Actually, just time works out accordingly. But, but here's the thing I want you to see. What they're doing, offering the sacrifice, seven different altars and one animal on each altar and come up to the high place, what they think they're doing, they think that they're currying the favor of God. They think that God's like a cosmic genie. And if we just rub God the right way and give him the right sacrifices and do this and do that, what are they thinking? They're thinking that God operates just like people do. So if you can bribe him and pay him off and give him enough sacrifices and the kind of sacrifices he wants, then it's just like rubbing the genie and then you get your three wishes and you can get what you want from God. Listen, can I remind us that's not how God works. That's not how God works. God won't be bought. God can't be bribed. What God wants is obedience. The Bible says to obey is better than sacrifice. Listen, tonight, God doesn't want your sacrifices. God doesn't need our sacrifices for that matter. And if we're just trying to make sacrifices to appease our conscience for something that we know that we're doing wrong, thinking we're going to weigh out the scales and buy God off or bribe God, well, yeah, I know I'm doing this and I know it's wrong. But I'm making these sacrifices. I gave this money or I read my Bible for three hours. Well, I mean, yeah, I just slept with somebody, but I read my Bible for three hours. Well, yeah, I just got drunk again, but I prayed for two hours afterwards. And see, sometimes we laugh, but, but we can be guilty of that. And do you know what God wants? Obedience. Obedience. Because it is more costly to sacrifice our will and say no to ourself and our flesh and to say, God, not my will, but your will be done. That's the greatest sacrifice, the sacrifice of obedience. Amen? Let's stand. Let's pray and we'll enter back into a, a time of worship and pick up there next week.